Section 3 of The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 8, May 1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jake Malizia. The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 8, May 1897. Section 3. A Modern Goliath by J. C. W. Brooks, U.S.A. Lieutenant Warner was not born to be a soldier. One month on the plains had been enough to convince him of that fact, a fact which was emphasised by the ever-increasing irksomeness of the life as years dragged by. Had he been graduated high enough in his class at West Point to have chosen an eastern artillery station, it might have been very different, but to remain an infantryman, cooped up in little adobe posts with an occasional scout over the barren alkali desert, would, he felt sure, in the end drive him mad. As if to aggravate the young lieutenant's unhappy condition, during his third year on the plains, he fell desperately, hopelessly in love with the steady blue eyes and frank, unaffected manner of Francis Wright, the colonel's niece and ward, who was spending the summer at Fort Griswold. Hopelessly, not because she was the colonel's niece, nor because of any discouragement on her part, but because the young lieutenant felt that no self-respecting man could ask or expect a girl accustomed to the refinements and pleasures of city life to give up all these for an existence of endless discomforts and ennui. As for promotion, Lieutenant Warner knew only too well that in the oft-thumbed army register, which opened of its own accord to the pages of his regiment, the 26th Infantry, he stood exactly number seven from the top of the line of first lieutenants, and careful study of the list of retirements had convinced him that even figuring in the most favourable way possible, counting every ailing officer as certain of causing a vacancy, he could not bring the time necessary for his promotion to a captaincy below a number of years too great to be sanely contemplated. Certainly the young officer used to tell himself bitterly, under these conditions it would be the height of folly to ask a girl to wait for him till his bars should come. It was just when Warner's despondency had sunk almost to the point of despair that light shone from an unexpected quarter. In poring over the list of retirements one day, his eyes fell on a vacancy in the commissary department, to occur in only a few weeks' time. A telegram sent at a venture to an influential senator, who was also a friend of his father's, had struck the iron while it was hot. By an answering telegram he learned that his message had been handed to Senator Lane just as he was starting to see the president, and that the senator had taken advantage of the occasion to lay Warner's name before that dignitary who had promised to consider it all of which put so different a face on life that during the succeeding month Lieutenant Warner felt free to spend every available moment with Frances, and though he did not speak a word of love, he knew that she must understand his feelings. During the same month, news arrived that a small band of Indians on a neighbouring reservation had jumped their limits, and that two troops of cavalry had been sent in pursuit. This tiny war-cloud suddenly developed with marvellous rapidity, all of the available troops in the immediate vicinity were ordered to take the field, and those at the post were directed to hold themselves in readiness to join the rest at a moment's notice. 
Close upon this news, the young officer received a second telegram from Senator Lane, telling him that the President had, that day, sent Lieutenant Warner's name before the Senate to fill the captain's vacancy in the commissary department, and that evening, after telling Francis of his good fortune, he asked her to share it with him. Perhaps the question was not altogether unexpected. At any rate, when he left, he carried with him not only her promise to become his wife, but the whole-hearted approval of the colonel, with whom he had long been a favourite. Nor did the chain of fortune break here. Before dawn on the following morning, the troops at Fort Griswold were ordered to take the field at once, and when, after several days of rapid marching, during which their forces were joined by others in the field, the scouts finally located the hostiles in a pocket in the hills. Warner was given the command of the detachment which was to attack the Indians in the rear at daybreak. In the inky darkness he succeeded in leading his men to their position, where he directed them to conceal themselves, choosing for himself a large rock, which, while protecting him from view, at the same time afforded an admirable prospect of the ground ahead. Kneeling there in the blackness, motionless, yet nervously alive to everything that was going on around him, he felt his excited brain burn with visions of the courageous acts by which he hoped to make himself worthy of a noble woman's love. How the moments dragged for those crouched behind the rocks and shrubs, scarcely daring to breathe, lest they should give a premature alarm! How they strained their eyes, peering into the intense darkness, which imperceptibly gave way before the approaching dawn! in whose uncertain light they imagined they saw Indian forms skulking behind every bit of cover. Almost it seemed that years passed instead of hours before the signal shot rang out in the clear morning air, followed immediately by a general rattle of musketry, telling that the conflict had begun. At that sound, the lieutenant sprang to his feet, and shouting to his men to follow him, he rapidly led the line deployed as skirmishers toward the top of the hill. The whistle of a bullet over their heads showed that they were discovered, but they never swerved in their onward rush. Several shots followed with no more effect than the first, when suddenly Lieutenant Warner felt a sting as of a red-hot iron drawn across his forehead. Instinctively he put up his hand. It encountered something moist and warm, and bringing it down he saw that it was covered with blood. He was wounded, how severely he knew not. A dizzy sensation began to creep upon him, accompanied by a cold perspiration, but he fought it down and still pressed forward. Suddenly he stumbled, fell, struggled to his feet, ran on a rod, and fell again. Realising that his senses were fast leaving him, the young officer called to the sergeant, and directing him to take command and push on to the front, he dragged himself behind a rock. His last thought before he lost consciousness was, If I am dying, I am at least dying a soldier's death, and one which will make Francis proud of me. How long he lay there he did not know. When he again opened his eyes, he saw Dr. Wise, accompanied by four litter-bearers, bending anxiously over him, while the former, with a damp sponge, washed away the clotted blood from Warner's forehead. Has the fight ended? the young officer inquired. "'Yes,' answered the surgeon, and at the same time the lieutenant saw his face harden. "'I guess you won't need the litter as much as some of the others,' he said curtly, giving his patient a large drink of whisky and helping him to his feet. 
Come to the hospital tent, and when you get in camp, I will dress your wound, he added, and directing the litter-bearers to follow, started up the hill. On examination, the wound proved to be only a flesh one, and the lieutenant was able to return to duty at once. During his homeward march, he was congratulated by everyone upon his narrow escape. While regretting that he had fallen so early in the fight, still the young officer felt that he had won his coming bars, and as he sat at breakfast on the day following the return of the expedition, his mind was wrapped in beatific visions of early promotion and removal to a cosy city home, presided over by Francis. Just as he rose from the table, an orderly entered with a message that the commanding officer would like to see the lieutenant as soon as was convenient. Five minutes later the young lieutenant entered the colonel's office and was surprised to find there Dr. Wise, as well as his superior officer. "'You sent for me, sir,' he said, addressing the colonel. "'I did, Mr. Warner. Read this,' he replied, holding out a sheet of legal cap paper. The young officer took it and read. "'Charge and specification. Preferred against Lieutenant William A. Warner, 26th Regiment of Infantry.' U.S. Army. Charge. Cowardice in violation of the 42nd Article of War. Specification. In that Lieutenant William A. Warner, Company K, 26th Regiment of Infantry, U.S. Army, having been entrusted with the command of a detachment of troops at the Battle of Rocky Run, did, after receiving an insignificant scratch, possibly caused by a pebble thrown up by a glancing bullet, shamefully abandon said command, and did conceal himself behind a rock until the battle was over. This at Rocky Run, about 5 a.m., July 17, 18. James A. Wise, Surgeon, U.S. Army. Witnesses. Major Thomas Agan, 26th Infantry. Surgeon James A. Wise. Assistant Surgeon John Bennett. Sergeant Michael Barney. A wave of horror swept over the young officer as he realised the full import of that little sheet of paper. Instead of being acclaimed a hero, he was charged with being a coward. His knees shook under him. He rested his hand on the back of the chair for support. "'You may sit down, Mr. Warner,' said the colonel kindly. And then, as the lieutenant availed himself of the permission, "'Have you anything to say?' he added. Though half-dazed by this blow to his reputation, the accused man realised that, to avoid a court-martial, he must vindicate himself then and there. "'The charge is false!' he exclaimed. "'I led my troops in person from the instant the signal shot was fired until I lost consciousness, as a result of a wound.' "'But Dr. Wise says that your wound would not have disabled a child. Is that not correct, doctor?' The latter nodded. But I was at the head of my troops when I was shot, Warner persisted desperately. Why then did you not stay there? rejoined the colonel. I can merely repeat that I lost consciousness as a result of a wound, the young officer said doggedly, though already he could see that his assertion carried no weight. But both surgeons declared that your wound could not have caused you to lose consciousness, replied the colonel sternly. The accused man saw that, in addition to being charged with cowardice, he was now suspected of lying. He drew himself up haughtily and said, "'I have nothing more to say.' "'Then you can go to your quarters in arrest,' commanded the colonel. Ten minutes later, the lieutenant entered his quarters, a disgraced officer, 
For hours he sat alone in his parlour and gazed at the floor in hopeless despair. No one came to express sympathy or offer aid. Already he foresaw that his whole life would be spent alone. No one would associate with a coward. His captain's commission would not be confirmed, and he would be lucky if he did not also lose his lieutenant's bars. Francis would never marry him. At this thought, he sprang to his feet. I am not guilty, he cried aloud. I will fight the charge to the bitter end. I will defeat the enemy who is plotting to ruin me. I will. But here, like a flash, a horrible suspicion darted through his brain. In a moment, everything was clear. His secret enemy was no other than Dr. Wise. Before this, the young officer had suspected that the surgeon was in love with Francis. Now he felt sure that because he had failed to win her, the physician hoped, by blasting Warner's reputation, to revive a lost chance. But how refute this terrible charge? Dr. Wise had succeeded in converting his assistant to his side of the case. Both would testify against the accused man, and he had no evidence to offer in support of his statements. In all the world, he could think of only one man who might help him. George Maynard, his classmate and inseparable comrade during his whole cadetship. Maynard had been by far the brightest fellow in his class, and was easily graduated at the head. But shortly after leaving West Point, at the wish of his father, Judge Maynard, he had resigned from the army, studied law, and even in so short a time had won the reputation of being one of the most brilliant young lawyers in New York City. Yes, undoubtedly, Maynard could help him if anyone could. Without a moment's delay, the accused man telegraphed his old friend to come to his aid. Then began an interval of eager expectancy, that grew to awful suspense as day after day failed to bring any answer. To add to the blackness of his outlook, the day after he was summoned to the colonel's office, Warner received a note from his superior officer, declaring that the lieutenant must consider his engagement to Francis at an end. Warner had expected this, but nevertheless it was a terrible blow. He had even walked over to his bureau, taken his loaded revolver from the drawer, and looked at it longingly. Only the knowledge that the act would, in the world's eyes, amount to an admission of guilt, restrained him from putting the weapon to his head and pulling the trigger. Hardly had he replaced the weapon in the drawer when the bell rang and a messenger handed him a second note. It was from Francis. Tremblingly he opened it and read, Dearest Will, Uncle has just told me of your trouble and that he has written to you breaking our engagement. I told him that the engagement was made by you and me, and that it could be broken only by one of us. I believe implicitly in you, and no matter how the court decides, it cannot shake my faith. You could never be a coward. Ever yours, Francis. That was all. But as the young officer pressed the little note reverently to his lips, it was with the vow that, with this as a talisman, he would establish his innocence, if it was within human means to do so. Days passed, the court was ordered and its members began to arrive, but no word came from Maynard, who, Warner was convinced, could never have received his telegram. By this time he had given up all hope of his old friend's coming, and the evening before the trial sat at his desk, as on many evenings before, trying to arrange his own defence, to devise some means of giving weight to his denial of the charge. Plan after plan was considered and rejected, until finally he rose and was pacing the floor despairingly when the door opened, and in walked Maynard. 
With a bound, the young officer threw his arms around his visitor and gave him a hug like that of a schoolboy. To Warner's excited questioning, the newcomer explained that he had been on a hunting expedition in the West when the telegram reached him, and that he had arrived before his reply. Upon hearing that the trial was set for the following day, he plunged at once into the midst of things, asking, first of all, for a copy of the charges. After reading this carefully, he asked, "'Are you guilty or not?' "'Before God, I am not guilty!' Warner exclaimed. "'That is good,' he replied. "'I'd hate to take a guilty case.' The accused man then proceeded to give a detailed account of the whole affair. He began with a departure from the post, and described every incident, even every emotion he had felt. Finally he showed the wound, of which there now remained but a thin red line across a forehead, made doubly pale by anxiety. "'You see, George,' he said in conclusion, "'if Dr. Wise can prove this charge against me, and the chances are certainly in favour of his doing so, I shall be dismissed from the army, and he will be free to press his suit with Francis. But, of course, the reasons I have for believing the whole charge, a conspiracy can never be presented to the court, for I'd rather die than drag Francis' name into the affair.' As he finished, "'I think you are wrong in your suspicion concerning Dr. Wise,' said Maynard. Warner shook his head. "'He holds too high a reputation to be guilty of such a contemptible act. "'He undoubtedly believes the truth of what he asserts. "'The whole case hinges on establishing the fact that you lost consciousness. "'You say that you did, and the two doctors say that you did not. "'I must hear their side of the case.' Thereupon he snatched up his hat and left the house. Two hours later he returned, looking, so Warner thought, very grave. He seemed disinclined to talk, and for an hour, while his companion smoked and meditated in silence, he sat at a desk, making pencil notes and occasionally asking a question. "'Has anyone here a file of a New York daily paper?' he inquired after a long silence. Upon being directed to the post-library for what he wished, he again left the house with no further explanation. When he returned, he went straight to bed, and neither then nor up to the time that the court assembled would he express any opinion of Warner's chances, or even let fall a hint as to the line of defence he proposed to adopt. Promptly at nine the next morning, the two friends entered the court-martial room. All the members of the court were present, arrayed in full-dress uniform. At the head of the table sat the court's president, Colonel Ellsworth of the 11th Cavalry, while on his right and left alternately, according to rank, were the other twelve members. The judge advocate sat at the foot of the table, surrounded by his books and papers. In the spectators' seats were crowded an assembly that Warner knew included practically all the post people, though he had looked that way but once. In that glance he had, however, caught Francis's eyes. She was sitting beside the colonel, looking very pale, but it seemed to Warner that he read trust and hope in her face. Well, he was glad if she could hope. He could not. Promptly upon the arrival of the young officer and his lawyer, the judge advocate announced that he was ready to proceed. Thereupon the president called the court to order, and all the members rose, and with ungloved right hands raised, swore to well and truly try and determine according to evidence, and to administer justice without partiality, favour, or affection. The first witness against Lieutenant Warner was the commanding officer of the expedition, 
Major Agen. He testified to entrusting the lieutenant with the command of the detachment of men, to instructing him to conduct it to the rear of the Indian camp, conceal the men there until the firing of the signal shot, and then push up and cut off retreat. His testimony contained nothing adverse to the case of the accused, and he was allowed to withdraw without any cross-examination. The next witness was Sergeant Barney, to whom Lieutenant Warner had turned over the command of the detachment upon receiving his wound. He swore to the fact that, until he received his wound, Warner had carried out the commanding officer's instructions to the letter. Immediately after the first few shots were fired, said the sergeant, I saw blood running from the lieutenant's forehead. He put up his hand and got blood all over it, and turned very white. He said as how he was wounded and for me to take command, and then he staggered behind a big rock and sat down. We went on and didn't see him again. The accused man noticed several slight expressions of surprise when Maynard allowed his witness also to leave the stand without asking him a question. There was a ripple of excitement as the judge advocate called Surgeon Wise to the stand. He was the prosecution's main witness and would give the most damaging evidence. At the close of the fight, began the doctor, after having been duly sworn by the judge advocate, Sergeant Barney reported to me that Lieutenant Warner had been left in the rear of the hostile camp, shot through the head. I took four hospital attendants and a litter and proceeded as rapidly as possible to the place indicated by the sergeant. As I approached the spot, I was much relieved, at this Warner smiled, a cynical smile, to see Lieutenant Warner sitting behind a large rock. He asked me if the fight was over, and I replied that it was. I wiped the blood from his forehead, expecting to find at least a deep gash, but instead there was a mere scratch. Lieutenant Warner was still pale and trembling, but on hearing that the fight was over, and after taking a drink of whiskey, he braced up and was able to walk with ease. I at once saw that the scratch on his forehead could not have been made by a bullet, but, desiring to consult the other surgeon before taking any steps in the matter, I directed Lieutenant Warner to report at the hospital tent in camp. When he reported there, Assistant Surgeon Bennett, to whom I had confided my suspicions, "'Just as I thought,' whispered Warner to Maynard, aided in examining the wound, and he confirmed my opinion that the wound had not been caused by a bullet, but that it was probably done by a stone thrown up by a spent ball. However cause, we both agreed that it was a mere graze, barely breaking the skin, that it could not possibly have caused more than a slight inconvenience to Lieutenant Warner, and under no circumstances could it have incapacitated him from leading on his command. Under the circumstances, I felt obliged to prefer charges of cowardice, because in no other way could I account for Lieutenant Warner's desertion of his command in the face of danger. While the doctor's testimony was being given, not a sound could be heard in the room. Everyone knew as well as did the young officer himself that if the surgeon's testimony could be broken down, Warner would be acquitted. If not broken, his conviction was certain. He glanced at the doctor's face, but saw only cold, pitiless determination. "'I have no questions to ask,' said Maynard as the doctor finished. A murmur of astonishment came from the spectators, and even from the members of the court itself, amazed by what seemed a surrender of the whole case. As to the accused man, 
He controlled his first impulse to spring to his feet, telling himself that probably Maynard had decided that the case was hopeless, and that an appeal to the clemency of the court, based on his previous record, was the only remaining resource. Assistant Surgeon Bennett was the last prosecuting witness. He merely confirmed the senior surgeon's testimony, and was also allowed to depart without any cross-examination, whereupon the judge advocate announced that the prosecution here rests. To Warner's utter amazement, Maynard himself requested to be sworn as the first witness for the defence. Amid a wondering silence, the young lawyer took the stand, and, drawing from his pocket two newspaper clippings, said, I hope the court will pardon me for presenting some apparently irrelevant matter, but I will explain later on its connection with the case. Then unfolding the first slip, he read, During the exhibition artillery drill yesterday at the West Point Military Academy, Miss Knowles, the daughter of Banker Knowles, was saved from a fearful death by the coolness, skill, and heroism of Cadet Warner of the graduating class. Miss Knowles was driving a spirited horse in a dog-cart when the animal took fright at the firing of the guns and dashed wildly across the plain, heading directly for that precipitous bank known as Lover's Leap. The spectators awaited with horror the impending disaster. Walking along the road by the cliff was Cadet Warner. Having been laid up for some time with a sprained ankle, he was excused from the drill. He saw the danger in which Miss Knowles was placed, and hobbled as fast as his lame ankle would allow to intercept the runaway. Cadet Warner is acknowledged to be one of the best horsemen and all-round athletes in his class. As the horse passed him, with a bound he seized its mane, and practicing the trick taught in the riding hall, he swung himself on the horse's back. In that position he had splendid control of the terrified animal, and succeeded in bringing him to a standstill on the very brink of the awful leap. I saw the whole affair, continued Maynard, and do swear the accuracy of the account. That one act will, I think, convince the court that at the time he was about to graduate, Lieutenant Warren was no coward. After the excitement had quieted down a little bit, he resumed. Last winter... At about four o'clock one afternoon, a fire broke out in one of the downtown tenements in New York. For a while it was beyond the control of the fire department, but it was thought that everyone was out of the doomed building. I will now read the newspaper account of what took place. The flames, says the paper, were pouring from the second and third stories when suddenly the figure of a woman was seen at a fifth-story window. A cry of horror rose from the spectators. The firemen stretched a canvas and called upon the woman to jump, but she had dropped half out the window, unconscious and unable to help herself. It seemed as if no human power could save her. The flames were so intense that no ladders could be placed against the building. Several firemen tried to ascend the staircase, but were driven back by the flames and smoke. Just as all hope had been given up, a man was seen on the steel framework of a building in the process of erection across the street. A derrick used for hoisting stood on top of the building. The man seized one of the guys and, with a running start, attempted to swing himself across the narrow street. Twice he tried and failed, while the crowd held its breath. 
the third time he succeeded in grasping the sill of the window where the woman lay. Innie climbed and reappeared with a fire escape rope. He quickly tied the rope under the woman's arms, and then rapidly yet carefully lowered her while the fireman stood below with outstretched canvas. While the limp figure was yet ten feet from the ground, a tongue of flame burst from a window of the floor below, which the hero stood and burnt the rope. The woman dropped safely into the canvas, but the man's escape was cut off. Was it a life for a life? For a moment it looked so, but the brave fellow was equal to the emergency. He had retained possession of the guy of the derrick, and easily swung himself back to the new building. A number of reporters awaited him at the bottom of the main ladder, but he must have come down another way, for he managed to slip off unseen. In spite of repeated efforts, no one has succeeded in discovering his identity, and as he has not responded to the many requests, it seems to be his desire to remain an unknown hero. Had it not been for this trial, resumed Maynard, his name would probably have never been known. The fire occurred but two blocks from my law office, and I saw the whole affair from the beginning to the end. The burst of flame that burnt the rope lit up the man's face, and I recognized it. As it was his evident desire to keep his name out of the papers, I respected it and remained silent. Now, however, I feel it my duty to give his name. You will remember that, at the time of the fire, Lieutenant Warren was in New York on leave. He was the unknown hero. As he finished, the spectators burst into a tumult of applause in which Warner thought the members of the court would have joined had it been dignified for them to do so. "'You can see,' said Maynard, when the applause had ceased, "'that no change in the character of Lieutenant Warner had occurred from the time he was graduated up to last winter. It would be very strange if within the last few months he had changed from a hero to a coward. I think I can show that he has not. Will the senior surgeon again take the stand?' Dr. Wise did as he was requested. Will you please examine Lieutenant Warner in a general manner, paying particular attention to his heart? Maynard asked. Though unable to understand the purport of this request, Dr. Wise complied, and after completing his examination, reported that, as far as he could determine from such an examination, Lieutenant Warner was in perfect health. That is all, said Maynard. Now I wish to explain to the court how Lieutenant Warner received his wound. Stepping a few feet to the right of the accused man, and in front of him, he placed a dark object on the floor. That, he continued, probably represents approximately the position of the pebble which, the doctors say, wounded Lieutenant Warner. When struck by the bullet, the stone was thrown up in this direction. Here Maynard picked up the pebble and carried it on a line to the young officer's forehead. As he did so, Warner felt the sharp, stinging sensation where the wound had been. "'Ah!' Oh, exclaimed Maynard in alarm. "'I have cut you with the pebble. I am very sorry.' "'Never mind, it's a mere scratch,' the other replied, drawing his hand across his brow, and again feeling, as he had on the battlefield, the warm moisture of the blood." As he brought his hand down, he saw a few drops of blood on it and drew out his handkerchief to wipe them off. For the first time, he noticed that the room was hot and close. 
The strain of the trial had tired him, and he felt that he must sit down. He reached for a chair, but too late. The room swam before him. He staggered and fell forward unconscious. When a few moments later he came to, he saw the doctor and Maynard bending over him. At this point the court wished to adjourn, but the lieutenant protested that he would soon be all right, while Maynard insisted on continuing. In ten minutes the young officer was able to take his seat, and Maynard resumed his place in the witness stand. When I was the cadet captain in command of Company A, he began, it happened that one day, just before marching out of parade, I was standing in front of my company, playing with my sword. In swinging it, I accidentally pricked Lieutenant Warner's hand, and through his glove drew a drop of blood about the size of a pinhead. A moment later, Lieutenant Warner plunged forward unconscious and had to be carried to the hospital. At the time, I did not connect the drop of blood with the fainting, but upon investigating this case, that drop of blood came to my mind, and I was sure that I held the solution of the present misunderstanding. You all heard the doctor pronounce Lieutenant Warner in perfect health. The pebble I placed on the floor was a piece of glass with a sharp corner, and with it, not accidentally, as I pretended, but by design, I scratched Lieutenant Warner's forehead. This I did entirely without any previous knowledge on his part of what I intended to do, and I relied upon the result of the experiment to establish his innocence. I succeeded beyond my wildest hopes. You saw him carry his hand to his head, bring it down all bloody, and a few instants later lose consciousness. This is precisely what occurred on the battlefield when he was wounded. It was the sight of blood and not personal fear that made Lieutenant Warner leave his command when the fight began. If he had not lost consciousness as the result of his wound, you would have seen him perform acts equal in heroism to those whose description I have read to you. At this moment the excitement of the spectators, which had been rapidly rising while Maynard was speaking, reached the limits of control. Someone started the applause, and in an instant the spectators were on their feet, cheering and waving their hats, and a moment later the crowd surged forward, crowding around Maynard and Lieutenant Warner, wrung their hands and even embraced them. Probably never before or since has such a scene been witnessed in a court-martial room. The court was obliged to take a recess, during which its members added their congratulations to those of the spectators. When at last quiet was restored and the court again called to order, at his own request Sergeant Wise resumed the stand and, in a most manly fashion, admitted the error of judgment which had resulted in the trial and made a most humble apology for the mistake which, but for Maynard's skill, might have ruined the young officer's whole life. He was followed by the assistant surgeon, and that testimony completed the trial. The trial is now many years past, and needless to say, the verdict was honourably acquitted. Today, Warner is major in the commissary department, and with Francis brightening his home, he is entirely satisfied with his adopted branch of the army. End of section 3